1970, founding father Paul Kantner released a solo album with the help of several Bay Area musicians, both within and apart from the airplane. He called the project Jefferson Starship. Well, that's where the name came from, but it didn't. I didn't really feature that being a band. We were still in Jefferson Airplane at the time, and that was just a side project. The band was sort of breaking up at that time, but it took like two years for the band to really come to that decision. The Starship started after the other band, long after the other band had died. Welcome, everyone. This is That Record Got Me High. I am Rob Elba, as usual, and it's great to have you guys here again, as usual. Uh, you know, what can I say? We're going back to the 60s. We're going full-on hippie today for this show. There's just no two ways about it. I can't, uh, I, I can't uh, stress enough how hippie-ish this record we're going to talk about is, but it's also really great, and it's something, of course, once again, that I had no idea existed. So, uh Let's, uh, let's introduce my guest, and then he will introduce uh, the record. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Michael LeBron. Welcome to the show, Michael. Yes, LeBron, like the basketball player, but not nearly as rich. There you go. And, Thank and you for having me. No, it's great yeah, having this you. This going to be fun. I will, we'll, we'll see about that, Michael, but uh, I think it will. <laughs> <laughs> now, where I, you know, uh, usually I find like a little bit about, um, I guess, I know, I'm just going to be honest, Michael, I know nothing about you. So where, first of all, where are you calling in from? Where are you? I'm calling in from the Hudson Valley in a small city called Newburgh, New York, uh, once known as the murder capital of the solar system, but it's really not nearly as scary as the East Village was that I uh, moved to when I was 18 years old to uh, start art school at the Cooper Union in oh. uh, 1972. Uh, back then, I, I lived in a uh, third story of a tenement walk-up on 6th Street, and behind me on 7th Street, uh, was sitting Thompson Square Park, which we had nicknamed Killer Park. Oh yeah, you, we, we would hear gunshots regularly. Oh well, this was okay. This was the early seventies New York. So this early seventies, yeah. When mean it was streets. Fun, this was, yeah, the mean streets of New York. Yes. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's. Uh, what are we talking about? What is the record you brought to talk about today? All right. Well, the record I brought to talk about is um, "Blows Against the Empire" by. And it's usually thought of as being the first Jefferson Starship album, but it's really misleading. It's really a Paul Kettner album. And uh, the title itself is shortened. The full title of the album is It's a Fresh Wind That Blows Against the Empire. So, uh, yes, I've enjoyed listening to many of your programs. You have uh, often what I consider a lot of experts talking about uh, uh, many of the uh, albums that you bring to your audience's attention. And uh, my only expertise is that uh, I was growing up when I discovered this record and it had a huge influence on me and helped guide the direction of, first of all, not only helping me decide that I wanted to be an artist as opposed to going to physics and astronomy, but that, 
you know, like a lot of people that age, we had the, as we recognize, thanks to 50 years of hindsight, were deluded to thinking that, oh, yes, art could change the world. And this is something we could do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's actually, that's nice to hear because it's easy. You know, Michael, you listen to something like this and, and in us, in, in our jade, everyone's so jaded and you hear it and you go, oh, God, these hippies. You know, I was even making fun. It's a hippie record. But there's nothing, the, the ideals that they're putting forth and that he's singing about and about the, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's all, it all, it's all great. It's all, it all would be great if it could actually, you know, really happen. It's something easy to mock and make fun of, but it's something great to aspire to. And yeah, look what it did. It, it, it took you and it, and it helped you see that, uh, money, it's not always about money and it's not always about, uh, you know, about, about that, about climbing the corporate ladder that you, you know, that, that, that there's more to life. Well, for me, it was a little bit more than that. Cause it's like, uh, I, I'm, you might be uh, aware, uh, from, um, uh, some of the theories in quantum physics, how a, uh, 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 the behavior of a quark uh, in one end of the universe can mirror the behavior of a quark in another end. So it's sort of like, as I got older, uh, I, I sort of learned that uh, Paul and I had weirdly similar personal tracks in, in our life and the, the, the choices that we made. So, um, oh, okay. Wow. So you think, so you think you and Paul are somehow connected like in the quantum universe. That's interesting. Well, I will tell a story and I'll let you and your audience decide. You, you tell me, you know, so, uh, I'm going to go back to when I was nine, uh, and, and I described this weird little anecdote about, you know, where this all started for me. Uh, I was going to, um, uh, a Catholic grade school. Paul, I think, was sent to uh, some sort of parochial military school, if I remember correctly, uh, also. When I was nine, that would have been 1963, I was in the fourth grade, and uh, one day I wasn't feeling very well. Instead of uh, going to the cafeteria for lunch, I went to the library to find a book to read. Instead, I, I, I saw this weird illustration on the cover of Time magazine. And I picked it up and I opened it up to read the story. It was about uh, a, an article about ICBMs. And, uh, you know, this was shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I wasn't aware of until I read the article. It had already happened and somehow my parents had kept this from me, you know. So I'm reading this article with intense interest and the following day I'm in religion class. And the other religion class, the nun says, all right, uh, anyone have any questions? And I jump up and I raise my hand. She goes, yes, Michael. And she says, what is it? I says, sister, if God really loves us, why is he letting us build all these nasty bombs and things that could destroy the human race and everything on this planet? Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, I thought that was a perfectly reasonable question to ask in religion class. Yes. But, you, would think, uh, you would think so, but... You would think so, but, <laughs> but the nun disagreed. Right. Michael, sit in the corner for the rest of the day. Oh, how dare you! Now <laughs> uh, that that was the wrong pedagogical lesson to impose upon Michael, because I gave him the rest of the day to think about what was wrong with this picture. <laughs> right, right. So that kind of soured right? you. So that kind of soured you on uh, religion. And, you know, uh, so yeah. so so that happened, and then segueing into music. A few years later, I bought my first album. Unlike my friends who were into the Beatles, I bought 12 by 5 by the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. 
So, so one of my teachers then also knew that I was trouble. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right? So, uh, and then uh, I think it was the next year, uh, came, uh, I got interested in um, the airplane serialistic pillow when it came out. And then I really liked that. And then I'm, the following year, it came uh, after bathing at Baxter's, which was a uh, metaphor for. Uh, after getting high on acid, I yes. think is yeah. what it really is. You know, we we also, had, that's yeah. how I found you guys because you did the thing on, on right, the right, right, right. Yeah, and, and that really interested me. You know, and th- but the 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 big thing for me was the following year when Crown of Creation came out. went to the record store and there was this album with this giant mushroom cloud on it with the band in the middle i go oh these guys are talking my language they're saying something that i wasn't allowed to say when i was nine years old right (laughs) so so then i was plugged into them so to move on quickly then there was volunteers and then finally blows against the empire came out and then that's when I realized, oh, it's not that I'm into the airplane. I'm into what Paul Catton is doing and what oh, he's okay. saying artistically and politically with the band. You know, and, right, and, right. and as you know, it, the, the, the album is a narrative and it's got two parts to it. So uh, uh, on the first side, Paul and Grace, who he's with at the time, I think there was a, a, a funny interview when, when they asked, so what's. So what was it like when you started dating Grace? And she said, she said well, she'd been through the rest of the band already. So there was oh, nobody Jesus. left but me. <laughs> uh, I will say, I just got to interject as far as uh, musically on this record. Uh, I, you just, you can't, Underst- uh, you can't overstate enough Grace Slick's contributions, like on her piano and her vocals on oh, this absolutely. record. Oh, she adds so much to it, and she she was so great. And I feel like she's. I I mean, I I know people know she was a great singer, but what a great musician and a great piano player, and just she was she was just so great. And she had yeah, she adds so much to this record. Oh yes, well, particularly on the second side, Paul wrote so- some of those songs with her style of playing in mind, which she admits she picked up from Nicky Hopkins. Oh, yes, right, right, right. You know, because Nicky Hopkins appears certainly on Volunteers a lot. And, and, and so she was around him, and, and she picked up on a lot of that stuff, and then Paul wrote for it, you know, to help bring, bring it forward. Right. Besides her, though, like Jack Cassidy, some of his most amazing playing appears on this record, in my humble opinion, particularly on the last two tracks on the first side with uh, a child is coming and uh oh yeah his ba- yeah his bass playing is uh yeah it's 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 off the charts and you and you like immediately i would hear it and then i look to see because there's a lot of there's a lot of people that play on this record like a lot of big names uh oh yeah well that's you got we Jerry Garcia, David Crosby, yeah. Um, well, uh, how that all came about is that, uh, you know, after Volunteers, the airplane sort of splintered for a while. And, uh, and, and I'm trying to imagine, you know, what must have appeared to some of the other band members as Paul's intensity. <laughs> and they just had enough of him. Right. And they said, give me a break. And so, you know, uh, 
uh, Jack and Yomar went off and did their hot tuna thing. Uh, Marty Balin had enough. This was just right after Altamont also, I think. He was taking a break, and then Paul's looking around what I'm going to do. And um, Wally Hyder just opened up a new recording studio. And so he figures, all right, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to do the solo record that I've been kicking around in my head for a while. He's into science fiction. That was another thing. Uh, I mentioned that I was also, you know, when I was a kid, I had a dual track interest. And the one side was the arts, uh, visual arts and music. And then the other side, uh, I was interested in astronomy and physics and then science fiction. And he's picking up on. Well, I was going to ask you, are you familiar or did you seek out? Because supposedly uh, by his admission, uh, the underlying premise is was uh, uh, derived from partly from the works of the science fiction author Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein. Right. Well, I read Stranger in a Strange Land first. And then I read Methuselah's Children, which uh, is the book that he's drawn from. Interestingly, before, you know, as Paul was working on his record, he called Heinlein and says, you know, I'm, I'm borrowing your concepts. Can I have your permission to use them? And Heinlein says, my God, no one, everybody borrows my concepts, and you're the first person to ask my permission. Oh, sure, right. go ahead. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool of him, though, that yeah. he did that, that he asked him. That's great. And Paul goes a step farther. He even compensates him for it by giving him a share of the royalties from the record. Oh, nice. Now, do you? So, now, at this point, I know um, Jefferson Airplane were obviously, you know, a, a big successful band. But how did this? Like, were you the, the? Were you like the one weird kid you knew that was into this, or were people into this record when it came out? Yeah. Well, I, I, I went to a Catholic grade school, and as you can imagine, I also had to go to a Catholic high school. Oh. And yes, I was the weird kid who was into the Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> okay. You know, and I was the weird kid with actually, there were two or three others who were experimenting with uh, substances. Uh, Although I I put the brakes on LSD after a friend of mine had a very bad trip, ended up in the psychiatric ward, and when he came out, he was never the same. Oh, wow. So I said, you know, maybe uh, I'll at least hold off on that time in college, and I can have a... um, you know, a shaman guide me through my experiences instead of freelancing on this stuff. Right, you know? right, right. Well, that, that was smart. <laughs> right. But I, I thought so. You know, back to your earlier point about all the people on this uh, album. So Paul wants to do this thing, and he wants to do it uh, based on his uh, interest in science fiction. And, and so... This new recording studio opens up, and at the same time, uh, David Crosby is in there recording his first, uh, what has now become famous, solo first LP, if I can only remember my name or something like that. And so you got all these musicians from the scene at the time, uh, drawn from Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Charlatans. Uh, Grateful Dead. Uh, the Grateful Dead. Uh you know, Janis Joplin's band, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Right. And, right. and Crosby, Stills and Nash. Paul Kantner and David Crosby were friends from going back before the birds or even the birds. They shared, uh, uh, I believe, an apartment in, in Venice uh, for a year or so uh, while there were still like real folkies in, um, you know, in the folky club scene. Yeah. So Paul eventually dubs this band, he calls it the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra. Oh, 
Jesus. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So, Only during the 60s. Right, I know, Only I did. know, right, yeah, it's true. <laughs> right, you know, but some amazing records come come out of this thing. Oh yeah, and just and just on the on this alone, just the the playing and the singing is just you know top notch. Of course, when you look, you know the people that are on this. I mean, it's just great. I, I was really blown away because I had never I had never heard any of this before. And of well, course, it's it's great. Well, look at what else comes out of the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra. It would be Songs for Beginners by Graham Nash, Paul and Grace's next album, Sunfighter, Papa so John Creech's first solo record. Graham Nash and David Cosby, and then Rolling Thunder by Mickey Hart and Anne Von Tolbooth with uh, David Freeberg later, and a bunch of others. Right. So, so a lot of good music came out of there in that brief window of like 1972 around. I guess that would be early, late 72, early 73. Right. So this, so yeah. So let's get into the uh, let's get into the record. Let's get in. Let's get into the into the mind of Paul Kantner, and then by and and then sort of the mind of uh, Michael LeBron, since you guys are connected somehow, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we get we get literally uh, personally connected. Uh, this would be about fifteen to twenty years later, but we'll get to that at the end of the show. Okay. All so, right. Awesome. All right. So the first one, uh, Mau Mau, uh, parentheses, American, very, very uh, Jefferson Airplane like with Kantner and uh, Slick harmonizing together. But um, uh, it's the opening track. So let's listen to a little bit of Mau Mau. Hide, witch, hide. The good folks come to burn thee. Their keen enjoyment hid behind a gothic mask of duty. So the so like I said, just the playing on this, the uh, drummer Joey Covington, uh, killing it, killing it on this and on uh, and on a lot of the a uh, few of the other songs on this record, just uh, just like just just like I said, uh, top notch. Oh yeah, Joey Covington is great. But one of the interesting things is is that uh, if you listen carefully all the way through, uh, this is a surprisingly percussionless record in the classical sense, even though it's drives the way uh, a heavy acid rock record would. And, and I think that's partly because of Kantner's roots. You know, when, when he formed the Jefferson Airplane with Marty Balin, he was actually very influenced by the Weavers. Oh, okay, uh, okay. 
uh, and Pete Seeger. And one of the reasons you had Sing Tol Tolson, is that how you pronounce your name? I never know how to pronounce your name correctly. No, don't ask but me. I'm, Grace, I'm the wrong person to ask how to pronounce anything. Oh, uh, Grace's predecessor, uh, the first Jefferson Airplane album had somebody else. And then she dropped out because you had Baby and she didn't want to do the whole touring thing. She wanted to do the family, you know. But, you know, Paul's whole concept, well, part of his concept of the band is to model itself somewhat after what the Weavers did in having uh, a female singer. Ah, okay. He was a huge fan in particular of Ronnie Gilbert. And, and, and so, believe it or not, there's a straight line between Ronnie Gilbert and Grace Slick. Oh, yeah. And talks among yourselves about that. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. I believe it. Hide Witch Hide, the good folks come to burn thee. Their keen enjoyment hid behind a gothic mask of duty. So it, this is sort of like the concept of, if you're going to have a concept album, you got to have something that kind of outlines what's coming ahead. So that's kind of like what this song is here, right? Well, exactly. This is partly, uh, you know, uh, back in that day, the, uh, a lot of those bands used to have free concerts in, in the park in San Francisco. Everyone would get high, do whatever they wanted to do. And remember, you're still in the teeth of the anti-war movement. Right, So. Right. So there are references here directly to the governor of California at the time. You unleashed the dogs, a great big movie star, Governor's War. And, and then farther on, uh, they reference uh, Dick Nixon. Oh, right. You know? and, and, so, <laughs> and so the song expresses this fear and loathing uh, of the, the, the world we're inhabiting at the moment. And what's the way out? What is the way out? Uh, get on that starship, got a goddamn starship, and uh, fly right. away. Yeah. But then, interestingly, then it's followed by the next song, "The Baby Tree." Uh, right, a, then, a a cover song written by a folk American folk singer Rosalie Sorrells. Let's listen to a little bit of "The Baby Tree." There's an island way out in the sea. Well, the babies, they all grow on trees And it's jolly good fun to swing in the sun But you gotta watch out if you sneeze, sneeze Gotta watch out if you sneeze Yeah, you gotta watch out if you sneeze For swinging up there in the breeze you're liable to cough, you might very well fall off And tumble down, flop on your knees, knees Tumble down, flop on your knees Alright, so so this, when you just read what it's about, what's the song about? It's about an imaginary island where babies grow on trees and are collected by happy couples when they fall. That is correct. <laughs> and this is supposed to be a nursery rhyme, and Paul actually sang this to his daughter china after she was born oh. poor china poor china i know right because <laughs> it, yeah it's kind of it's kind of creepy right <laughs> it's a it's a it's a little weird it is. It is. <laughs> but i love it you know yeah I, it, but it just seems to come out of nowhere until you realize that paul comes out of the weavers and this is like the weavers yes. stuck into the middle of his record and and you're right. And what you said, there was there's no real drums on this one. It's sort of like folky, just a very folky, uh, strummy type thing. So yeah, you're right. Uh, right. Uh, and that's and that's Jerry Garcia on the banjo. 
So good. Yeah, great. Jerry. Yeah, he, he plays all over this record. It's crazy. It's all over. Well, Jerry Garcia goes back to these guys all the way back to Surrealist. I, I think actually to the first record, if I remember correctly. But he's certainly credited on the second one, Surrealistic Pillow, as being the uh, spiritual counselor, I think, is his credit. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. So this next one, this is this next one is very interesting. I got a question for you about this next one. But let's listen to a little bit first of the next one. Let's go sure. together. Wherever I go, there's always blue. There's always the moon and me. And whatever I do, he wants to do. And the blue and you and me together make free. Let's go together. Let's go together. Let's go together. Okay, so it starts out, uh, wherever I go, I see you people, I see you people just like me, and whatever you do, I want to do, and the poo and you and me together make three, let's go together, let's go together. Now, he wrote, in, in when we did the, um, after baiting at Baxter's, he wrote that song, The Ballad of You and Me and Pooh Neal. Which also, so he's like obsessed with with uh, Pooh. with Pooh, with Winnie the Pooh, right? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's weird. Well, you know, Grace Slick was obsessed with Alice in Wonderland, and after she retired from music, uh, uh, her rather infamous quote was, oh, "When someone asked her why are you retiring, she's, are you kidding me? I'm too old for that shit now. I'm going uh, back to she's great. She's so great. <laughs> she, she's the best. I love her. <laughs> she is. And and what did she, she went back to what? You know, someone who went to, you know, myself, a world-class art school in Lower Manhattan and studied conceptual art and, and, and linguistics and so on, went back to a very cheesy form of painting. They look like black velvet paintings of scenes from Alice in Wonderland. I go, well, Grace, I love you. Whatever, what's your whistle? Go for it, please, yeah. you know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, so now we get, uh, yeah, so, and, and then it ends, that song, it ends on a kind of foreboding uh, note. It says, wave goodbye to America, say hello to the garden. So, uh, yeah, they're they're leaving. They want to, uh, I mean, America at that time, it was so fucked up. Well, it's funny now saying it was so fucked up, like like now everything's great, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, we didn't know that 50 years from then, we'd be... Uh, uh, one degree removed from fascism. I mean, real fascism. Exactly. <laughs> not, not the kind we talk about in uh, a Smokefield coffee shop filled of left-wing intellectuals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
All right, so now we get a, uh, a typically a beautiful, a more beautiful singing by Kantner and Slick and uh, David Crosby as well, which, I mean, say what you will about David Crosby, that man sings like an angel. Oh, yes. Well, the three of them together, because David's really taking Marty Balin's place here, and the three of them harmonize like nothing doing here in this song. And so that those three voices soaring over Jack Cassidy's bass line in this song, is, yes. and then solo, you know, Jack Cassidy is playing his bass like a lead guitar. Uh, you know, it functions as a lead instrument in the song. Yes, during, yeah. During the, uh, the middle of it. Uh, uh, and people need to hear that. Last electric Sunday morning Waiting in the park for dawn Listening to all the animals In the park and in the city beyond Flashing with my lady distort they'll like overdrive the bass and do that and like this is like so, you know that he was doing that he was he was like really ahead of his time as far as the bass player. yeah well he came from a jazz background you know like a lot of the really best people in rock did you know i mean look at who recently passed away from the rolling stones you know charlie watts he was a jazz drummer right 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 you know so I assumed originally a child is coming. I assumed it was a Jesus reference, but n- not really, right? Uh, well, if the nurse who was attending Grace as China was being born is to believe, Jesus was coming because. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, after Grace gave birth, you know, and the nurse says, "So what are you naming the child?" But Grace was still in pain, and she's going. In a matter of expression, I'm in such pain here. Ask me what what I'm going to name my child right now, and she lets out, "Oh God!" Oh, there you go. <laughs> and the nurse goes running to the the press saying, "Grace is naming her child God." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of sweet when you look at it that way. And the word, uh, you know, um, a child is coming to you, and they, yeah, they were pre- they were going to have China Cantner, so that's kind of well. Sweet. It's really a very beautiful song, and when you think of it, it is. as an ode to to the birth of their child it's really uh a a very sweetly beautiful song as well as being all the other things that it's trying to communicate about the world that china's being born into with its foreboding lines at the end because it goes from this sort of as you know there's two parts to the song excerpt you know it goes from this sort of 
uh, skippy folksy sort of thing to then this sort of deep gospel thing. Yeah. Well, and, and then there's also a little ironic history to this song. I don't know if you even know about this, but do you remember in the 80s when they had the uh, backwards masking thing, the frenzy? Listen carefully. Where they, yes. where they were finding all these things. Okay, this song, which is crazy in particular, this song, because it's got such a sweet, you know, like it's sort of a song about hope for the future for their child. They thought that the phrase, it's getting better, like when they say it's getting better, came out backwards saying, son of Satan. So, so to them, the child in the song oh, is the son of Satan. <laughs> You're right. I haven't heard that one. I'll, I'll, I'll put a bookmark on it. <laughs> yeah, isn't that? They're so great. I uh, love those, and they're still, they're still. I mean, they're not backward, but they're on to other things now. But uh, they're still, uh, <laughs> mm. they're still hysterical about something. All right, so now we got side two of the record. Now, I was going to ask you, uh, Michael, do you still, like, do you have your original vinyl of this, or have you gone through uh, copies of this over the years? I have my original vinyl, but I have several copies because I do go through them. That said, uh, this is one of my, it's probably my favorite record out of my, if there's a record I had to, I was going to say, go off to a deserted island, I, I suppose the appropriate metaphor would be, in this case, would be to go off to a, deserted galaxy there you go <laughs> right exactly on your starship what's what's the one record i would take with me it would be this one and it's framed in uh the cover is framed and hanging over my turntable oh nice the cover is something the cover is something to talk about because it's sort of stolen from a um a mahogany uh laminated box oh okay yeah, i was wondering about room that. here in new york city oh i know what paul has against russia because he says well you know the russians are bootlegging all of our records so i thought i'd bootleg one of their pieces of art oh, nice. but you know I, I have a couple of airplane bootlegs here in my collection and they were made here in the good old u.s all right so we so we flip the record over uh we get a uh Really pretty song written by Grace Slick and uh, sung with a typically stunning vocal. Let's listen to a little of Sunrise. Yes, and this is also again uh, Jack Cassidy's brilliant bass line underneath it. I think oh yeah, much the Jack just, Cassidy bass again is it, like yeah, off the charts. It, it's just pretty much her and Jack alone on this thing. Believe it or not. Yeah, so. yeah, uh, yeah. He's great. You don't need a guitar or piano or anything when Jack Cassidy is playing. No, you do not. <laughs> 
No. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I think I really, I, a side two is, is, is it for this record because side two really definitely has a whole, it's almost like a suite of songs that all kind of really go together for me, right? Uh, and so that is correct. Well, it was written as a suite. Yeah. The whole, the whole album is a concept. Really. The first side is here in the park getting stoned. We're angry at the, our government. What the hell are we going to do? I know we're going to take off on the starship. You flip the record over and then that's the suite. Uh, and it was the suite that uh, made somebody nominated for the uh, Hugo award, which is the sci- the award for science fiction novel of the year. It's the only musical recording ever nominated oh, for the Hugo nice. award. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So the second song on side two hijack is definitely like the sci-fi epic of the record. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of the beginning of uh, hijack. about a group of hippies who hijack a starship to escape the establishment and live uh, live free in outer space, right? And this was supposed to happen I, I this was supposed to happen in 1990, so <laughs> it just didn't happen. I, I I don't think Paul is good with numbers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe 2090 maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, the summer was dry like your nose when you've been behind Coke for a day in a season. That's kind of, that was kind of, that's kind of like really real, like to put in this song, that was, that was pretty bold, you know, I think to put that in there. It was, it may seem bold by our vantage point, but remember, we're already past volunteers where they'd finally talked RCA to letting them say fuck on the record. So I, I think once that happened and the floodgates were open. Right. And, and, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. But this isn't but, the Velvet Underground, you know? I mean, so it's, it's usually bands would, would you know, sort of use euphemisms, you know, for certain things. But here, no, they're, they're not. They're laying it out there. The land is green and you make it grow. Go to the forest and move. The sound of thundering electrical energy calls us to the park in the noon. Come on, anybody. Now fill my pipe to the park, to the forest and the moon. Uh, so yeah, they're, and they're talking about, um, witch hunters. Oh, you know, I was going to ask you, Michael, do you have any idea? They, they reference a date. They go, you know, I remember the 23rd of November. I couldn't find anything about the 23rd of November. Uh, I've 
always been mystified about that myself. And the only thing that I can think of is that Paul was really affected by the assassination of JFK, like most of us were, and he got the date wrong, which is the 22nd <laughs> of November. <laughs> That's hysterical. You're probably right. That's probably it. All right. So now, uh, so the next one home is basically just a little instrumental uh, lead in. Well, before we go there, there's an important little thing I want to draw to your attention at, this, at the end of the song. Because oh, remember, uh, hijack? Okay, go ahead. You know, even, even, though, even though we think of uh, the Jefferson Airplane and Paul Cantner as being this psychedelic acid rock, remember he has his roots and folk music and folk music was very political and especially in the early 60s when he is coming of age and so at the very end we have this lyric where do we go from here chaos or community that is a title to uh of the king's last book before he was assassinated ah. so he's directly quoting and referencing martin luther king ah okay okay so, yeah, so, the, so then we get The Home, which goes into Have You Seen the Stars Tonight, uh, which is uh, Paul Kantner and uh, David Crosby's uh, listed as a co-writer in this. And, right. And you got Jerry Garcia playing uh, pedal steel guitar on this. Pedal which is steel, that awesome. is Awesome. Yeah, I didn't even know he played pedal steel. but uh, Oh, yeah, well, oh, absolutely. Jerry Garcia's pedal steel on, on uh, David Crosby's album uh, is phenomenal, especially the the last track on the first side, where it it, it does you would never know it was a pedal steel guitar unless someone told you. Oh, okay. Uh, the, okay. The things the things that he does, and maybe that we we should have you done that album already on your show? Because maybe that's something we should do. Because I know a lot about that record too. Okay. It's a, <laughs> right. you know, well, but, you'll be the hippie. You'll be in charge of all the hippie records. <laughs> but there you go. All right. <laughs> And then this is a song that might have normally been written for Marty Balin because it's a beautiful ballad. Right, right, you know? right. But, you know, since Marty Balin is sulking someplace, licking his wounds from Altamont, oh. you know. Uh, <laughs> so David Crosby steps in here. Right. Have you seen the stars tonight? Would you like to go up on a deck and look at them with me? Have you seen the stars tonight? Would you like to go up for a stroll and keep me company? Do you know we could go? We are free. Any place you could think of. of uh the xm the next one xm is sort of like uh it sort of ends this one it's another instrumental and i feel like it kind of ends that and then leads into the final track uh final track and and it's very i mean some of the stuff i, I won't say it sounds 
dated. Some of it can't help to sound a little dated, just because you know, even uh, science fiction when uh, when people were doing things futuristic back then. It, it, some of it just, you know, because now we actually are in the future and we're past the future that they were even imagining. So, uh, you know, some of it sounds like a, a hippie's idea of maybe sci-fi space music, what it, what it would sound like, you know? <laughs> well, uh, I, I look, I, I love this record, but uh, there's absolutely no way around it. It's dated by virtue of the fact that we're already past 1984. Right, <laughs> yeah. Long exactly. That, that alone... It says it, you know, but then, you know, in a way, uh, uh, the printed page dates less as much th than uh, music or the visual arts because uh, the printed word leaves a lot to your imagination. So you, you can sort of like, you, you, you fill it in with your imagination that's been populated by everything you've learned since. And so you, your mind is automatically sort of bringing it up to date in a way that you know, uh, an artifact like this album, you know, it is what it is. And yes, it's definitely dated. A lot of the things by today's standards are frankly a little corny, you know, right, but it doesn't right. mean that you can't, you know, appreciate, appreciate it the way it. that exactly. you would appreciate exactly. the way that you would appreciate mid-century's furniture. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, and I was going to ask, before we get into the last track, Starship, obviously this isn't the, I mean, even though the, the Starship name, this is like the first time it came out, this doesn't really have much to do with eventually the Starship. What's your opinion of Starship at all? Do you have any opinion of, Star, of Jefferson Starship and then eventually it just became Starship? Right. What well, do you think of all that? Um, for me, yeah, be uh, honest. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm just trying to be specific about it. You okay. know, for me, uh, what started with the first Airplane album sort of ended with uh, this record, possibly, and with uh, Sunfighter for sure. You know, and then the Airplane had two more records, Bark and um, uh, Long John Silver. But by then, you're hearing different bands performing on the same record. What was going to become Jefferson Starship. Right, right. Centered around Slick and Katner. Well, it was going to become what had already become uh, Hot Tuna with uh, uh, Jack and Yorma. You know, there there are tracks and they, and they just stand out. Oh, this is a Hot Tuna track. Oh, this is a, right, a Starship right, right. track. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's the uh, a few Marty Balin crooning love song tracks, you know. Uh, and so then eventually... Paul and Jack left for good, and they were replaced. And there are the, the first two Star, Jefferson Starship albums weren't bad, but they <laughs> <Right>. weren't good. <laughs> okay. That's, <laughs> and, and, and That's time, very diplomatic of you. Right. And by the time you get to uh, after they've had their legal squabble, and Paul forces them to remove Jefferson from the band, although oddly, the name Jefferson's uh, Airplane was invented by Yomer Kalkoni, but somehow uh, it was Paul who ended up with the ownership of the right. name Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Anything. Right. And once the band was completely speaking of playing in reverse and selling itself to the devil with we built a city. I know. I was waiting for you to bring you know. that. <laughs> right. That's you the know, nail. That's actually, the nail in the coffin. It's actually a catchy tune that it's you catchy. can't get it is. the hell out of your head. 
So I have to. But it's horrible. It's catchy, but it's still horrible. Yeah. No, you're right. (laughs) But, but you know that that's you know when when you get hired by a company and then the company changes direction and you're sitting there and as an employee and saying, wait, that's not what I signed up for. Right. (laughs) It's like that. (laughs) Yep. And, And so. You know, Paul is sitting there and saying, no, I don't want to have any. And I'm totally with it. No, that stuff, can I say it, sucks. Okay, <laughs> good. That's what I, that's what I just want to say. It, it sucks, <laughs> you know, and it's just amazing. You know, we're, we're, and with Mickey Hart in there, I mean, he's got a great voice, but it's not, that's not what we signed up for. There was nothing so there anymore. There was no soul there anymore. It was just There like, was no soul there. Was, and, yeah. for, and for me, there was no content because... Going back to when I was a kid, remember I'm sitting there in the corner when I was in uh, in the fourth grade, nine years old, wondering what the hell is the matter with this picture? And the reason I, I like a band like uh, the Airplane is because of the, the the content of their message and their music. Right. You know, and there was no more content anymore. It was just no, like there was. Love songs, nothing but love songs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you know, must rock have. And roll. So as a science fiction fan already, you must, especially in this one, uh, because they're bringing, like when he's talking about uh, spilling out of the steel glass, gravity gone from the cage, a million pounds gone from your heavy mass, all the years gone from your age. This is it. They're taking off on the starship, you know? <laughs> and, uh, what you gonna do when you feel your lady rolling? How you gonna feel when you see your lady strolling? Great, uh, again, great, tasty lead guitar from Jerry Garcia. And mm-hmm. the last the last few lines kind of kill in this when it says, At first I was iridescent, then I became transparent. Finally, I was absent. That's heavy. Right. Well, you know, that's like at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Which yeah, was, uh, that's was what not, I was thinking of. Which was not an old movie back uh, then. It was, right. That's only a few years old. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that is the uh, child orb at the end. You right. know. Right. That's that. Uh, uh, that's sort of a almost a direct reference to that. Ah. Uh, okay. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah but uh, so uh, yeah. Great, uh, Michael. This, like I said, uh, 
I love one of my favorite things about the show is people just bring these records and I'm like, what? What the fuck is that? I never heard of that. And, and it's like, oh my god, you you know, you dive uh, you dive into it, and uh, you know, there's just so much. Uh, that's why people, you know, people ask me, oh, what are you gonna do when you run out of records? It's like, I'm never gonna run out of records to do because oh no, <laughs> right? Never. Um, so. Yeah. Closed then. Oh yeah, that's so, right. You had the final, uh, the final thread to uh, to tie up. So go ahead, let's hear it. Right. So you know, my work is very political and conceptual, and it led me to do a lot of public, publicly cited art installations. And because of the cool nature of the work, which was designed to sort of uh, explode the content, it, it, they, my work looked like an advertisement, and it would buy billboard space next to other advertisements, and it was designed to explode load the uh, underlying semiological context uh, of the marketing world that w envelops us. And then immediately, you know, the, the vendor would see this, oh, we can't allow this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I t except I was very careful to buy space in public transit systems where the vendor had already allowed other political advertising. And so therefore, because the government ultimately controls those spaces, the vendor can't decide what ads go up and which ones don't based on their political content because the government is constrained from doing that. The, the First Amendment doesn't allow them to pick and choose what political viewpoints are to be heard. And one of my viewpoints is that commercial advertising itself is a political viewpoint about how to address any sort of social or political or personal need, you know. Okay. Uh, as a consequence of doing that work and being sort of active politically, I had friends who were involved in the um, anti-war effort in Central America during the mid-80s, particularly with regard to Contra War in Nicaragua. And they came to me for help to do an ad campaign time to a vote on Contra aid in Congress in 1987. And they brought to me a whole bunch of pictures they wanted me to use to design the campaign around and they said what do you think i said well i said how many people do you want to reach and i said oh millions we want to reach all of america i says well if you want to do that you're, you're not going to use these pictures <laughs> right <laughs> right you know there it was really nasty you know war crime stuff you oh, know okay, it's okay. like pieces of bodies all over the places hey. so so we're sitting there scratching our hair i says all right and i did a little research we had another meeting with lasers all right i got it you know um uh, half of the country in Nicaragua under the age of 15. That's a country of children. Children are witnesses. They've seen these war crimes. So let's do a campaign based on children writing a letter to the own age in the United States about the experiences of the Contra War, but to overcome the language barrier, they're going to draw pictures of what they saw with crayons and magic markers. Oh, wow. So they says, great idea. This is good. So you've got people on the ground over there. Go down there. Get these drawings, bring them back to me. So I wait a month, they come back, and all I have is pictures of like flowers and birds and trees and shit. Sh <laughs> no, that's not what I want. Right. <laughs> no. And then we had lost a month. I says, damn it, I got to go down there myself. So, so uh, I hired a photojournalist who'd done a lot of work down there, been captured by the conscious twice, and loved to tell the tale. So I oh, says, that's Jesus. my guy, you know. And so we spend a month in a war zone, and I got, I got the lovely experience of being shot at with my own tax dollars. <laughs> wow. But but we got the drawings we wanted. We came back with 150 of them. And then I worked with a uh, human rights lawyer 
from uh, the United Nations who helped me uh, inventory and, and match up the drawings with documented war crimes uh, committed by the Contras. Oh, and wow. out of 150 drawings, we ended up with 25 that were able to run throughout the Washington, D.C. metro transit system. And it went up the day that uh, the hearings for Robert Bork's nomination started. Talk about fortuitous timing, because Robert Bork wrote the opinion in a free speech case that I brought before the D.C. Circuit four years earlier. Oh, wow. And, and he wrote it in my uh, favor, and I hit the trifecta at that time, because uh, joining the opinion, or, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Antonin Scalia and Kenneth Stark. Oh, I hit the Jesus. Trifecta. Wow, you got the I trifecta. I hit the trifecta. <laughs> I hit the trifecta. <laughs> And they wrote in my favorite. So in the evening news, when this thing goes up, there are three stories before the first commercial break. The first was the Pope visiting the United States. And then the second one was Robert Bork's nomination. And then the third one was me. Oh, so for wow. this little $40,000 investment that I made in this project, I got a couple of million dollars in free national TV exposure for this right. cause. Right. And then... A couple of months later, I'm sitting in a coffee house in Washington, D.C., and my congressperson uh, representing me in New York sees me and recognizes me and comes up and he says, i got to thank you for this because, you know, going back to, could art really change anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 in the big picture, I, I'm really skeptical, but in this case, he says, no, you, you helped me switch, flip six votes, and there are probably others that... Ha- had similar experiences, right. so it moved, did make a difference. Move the and needle so, a little. Move the, the needle a little bit. It moved the needle a little bit. Right. And so we had a fundraiser at the Limelight Discotheque in uh, Manhattan to raise money for this. Right. And uh, the master of ceremonies was Paul Robeson Jr. And uh, reading from some of the s- stories, because we did collect written stories, was uh, Ed Harris and Linda Hunt and Jay McInerney and a few others, uh, Bianca Jagger, uh, but contributing uh, $9,000 to the effort was Paul Kettner, who himself himself was in Nicaragua at pretty much the same time that I was. And and we had a lovely conversation over the phone. He's a very down-to-earth guy, and we talked, and that's where I started to discover, oh, my God, we're, we're... mirrors of each other. I'm just born a dozen years later than you, and you're on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast, and right, I have the right. same concerns, I'm trying to execute during the, uh, the, the same things, you know, so, um, oh, nice. so, so, so full circle, there you have it. There you go, in the rock and roll circle of life, and then it ends, it all ends here at That Record Got Me High podcast, where... <laughs> <laughs> with the story, the whole story is told. Well, that's great. That, that that's awesome. And uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, uh, screw it, hippies. Yeah, you're a good hippie, Michael. <laughs> you and Paul. <laughs> uh, thank you. I I, I did uh, as an aside. I did try to grow my hair long again uh, during the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it How'd was a go? disaster. <laughs> it good. was a disaster. There's okay. just not enough of it. And you just end up looking like a Woodstock dinosaur. That's yeah. how the term came about. <laughs> <laughs> right. no, 
That's oh, going well. off. Forget it. Yeah. yeah, some things you can't go back to. Uh, well, that was great. That was awesome. Uh, man, what a life. Uh, and what a record. So uh, we did it. Uh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and doing this and bringing... Uh, bringing all the info uh don't forget guys um instagram and facebook you could follow me at, at that record got me high also that facebook group got me high and uh twitter it's at trgmh podcast and if you guys hey you know what you can become a patron too if you want you go to patreon.com forward slash trgmh you become a patron of the show i'd appreciate it michael what can i say it was a pleasure having you. well it was a pleasure for me because you know uh, this music means a lot to me and just a couple of months ago i, I was playing uh, Harry Belafonte's Live at Carnegie Hall for a friend up here. And I says, you know, we're all dying off and there are very few of us left who really are around to appreciate this music. And it means so much to me <laughs> to be able to share this stuff right. where, with an audience that's going to appreciate it and remember it after we're gone, you know? Yep, so, that's it. All right. That's awesome. So, all right. There you go. Thanks again. All right. We'll see you guys next week. This is That Record Got Me High. I'm Rob Elba. Uh, yeah.